cliffcentral.com. Welcome back to the burning platform with Sis Pumi and me. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Lieto. <laughs> Good Hello, morning. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, just to set the scene to start, everybody knows you, Lieto, so I'm not going to like introduce you. And when we, when Kaya comes on, I think it's um, going to be fascinating to see. But I think just to set the scene, you know, we, we're currently living in a world where, and, and to, to actually think about it, it didn't start just yesterday. You know, on December 18, when the riots in Tunisia started that spread throughout the Arab world, um, some call it the Arab String. And there were cheers and there were weeps. But it's estimated that some 61,000 people died during that time, and millions of them we've seen were displaced as refugees. And I was very fascinated. I've been reading a book by the Pope. Um, that Pope Benedict, who then resigned in 2011, said, may the Lord come to the aid of the of our world torn by so many conflicts, which ev- even today stain the earth with blood. And today, with Russia and Ukraine, we see it happening all over again. Yeah, and Pope Francis, about eight years ago, said, we're in a piecemeal world war with all of all of the, the various skirmishes happening all around the world. And I think, you know, it's important to be able to speak to people who are thinkers and travelers and change makers. And I think Kaya Sole is one of those people, you know, when it comes to South Africa, he's a Renaissance man to a, a point, you know, he has an interesting take and Bagabandu has an experience with Kaya. He is, he's a former student of Kaya when he was lecturing at uh, Advance. And you, Leto and Kaya, have something in common, right? Because that of shaping young minds. Wait, that's what's that true. face? It's, it's shaping no, no, he was confused. Because like, he's like, I have dreads and Kaya has a bald head. <laughs> Shame that. <laughs> so, and Bhagavan, did you, do you know if he's coming online? Uh, or are we still waiting for him to come online? He's joining us, I think, from the UK today. Oh. I think he's in the background, but uh, I think we're still setting him up. Okay. Oh, okay. Leto, what's happening on your side of the world today? <sighs> it's always depression. So I have to explain what happened last week first. So what happened? What happened is, to you last week? So what happens is whenever there's like load shedding or, or power outage, people steal cables. So unlike in Johannesburg, it's not one. Um, suburb against another. There's like vast open land. And so people just track where people put cables down. And then whenever there's a power outage, they go to the to the open field and they dig out whatever cable is there. They don't care which cable it is. They just dig out the cable and sort of like drive off with it. So the way in which you steal cables is very crude. Um, so when they did that, they stole the t- telecom cable, which is the major cable that carries Welcomes internet or the Northern Free State's internet. And so the I think that's the the reason why I didn't have internet connection. So I could see you guys, I could watch you on YouTube, but I couldn't come into studio myself. It was the strangest thing ever. So now um apparently there's one only one reliable uh network you can use in Welcome for internet when everything else has been stolen. So 
I've gotten that network now, and You're so I'm deep. here. I'm in the clear. <laughs> we did miss you last week. We had an incredibly fascinating conversation. But there is a lot happening in the world of in the world as a whole, but in South Africa today. We were speaking a little bit earlier about Prasa and the ghost employees, and Yvonne brought up something that's beginning to sweep throughout the world and throughout South Africa. I saw a, a clip from, and purportedly in Kimberley, Operation Dudula. Um, oh, yeah. Alex, we are calling it Operation Fiela. And if it's spreading to places like Kimberley, and Kimberley is far, <laughs> you know, and far and sparsely populated. I'm wondering if you have similar protests or action happening in your neck of the woods, Leandro? Um, so, yeah, starting with, with the Prasa Ghost employees, like like I've said, South Africa's only realizing what's been in Valcom for years now. Like, our problem of ghost employees, we started challenging it eight years ago, and it's still a problem now, right? The people who are ghost employees are actually trying to burn down the municipal offices yesterday because of the investigation. But I thought they were ghosts. <laughs> yeah, they're ghosts. They're ghosts in principle. It's they're ghosts because they don't go to work. They're not ghosts when it comes payday. That's the difference. And these um, are people but, that are known. Um. So yeah, you you have like double IDs. So you have somebody having um three ID numbers on the payroll. They're getting three different salaries with three different accounts. Um. So that is is how. They do everything. So um, you'll find that Pumi has three um, three IDs on the on the payroll, but um, two different or three different bank accounts. So other people get the money and you share it with them. It's a whole it's a whole scheme. network. And yeah, do you have? Scheme. We've spoken before about um, the what they call the, the Zamazamas and that a lot of them are from Lesotho. So do you have kind of the protests that we're seeing that are anti-illegal foreigners? Kaya, welcome. We, we see you. <laughs> we probably won't get those because remember the first thing is the free state in and of itself is, is a mix of foreigners, right? Um, foreigners are carrying our economy. And so if you now have Operation Dudula here, you're chasing away anyone with any kind of buying power, but also you're chasing away anyone who could try and remedy whatever situation we have here. And so it will probably not happen in Valcom. That's why you've never heard of xenophobic um, attacks or incidents here because we're such an already mixed-up community. Wow. And then just as I was about to bring Kaya in on the conversation, he walks away from us. <laughs> What's up with that? But Kaya, welcome on the show. And I think that to start off with, are you are you talking to us from the UK, Kaya? I'm not talking to you from the UK. I'm trying to wake up from the UK. It's 5 a.m. Oh man, we appreciate yeah. you. We've been awake since four, so that's okay. Again, that would make it two. I was still up. I was actually lecturing someone at two a.m. Oh my god! So, 
Leto is our guest and he is our man on the ground in Valcom, always bringing us the experiences of the everyday man on the ground in Valcom. And the two of you have something in common in that you shape young minds. He's a lecturer at Central University and Bagabantu is the person above you. He is a former student of yours. You may not recognize him because of all of the people <laughs> that have been. I am very interested because you're over there. Mm. The tour of Prince William and what? No, what is this new title? The Duchess, the Duke and Duchess of of Cambridge. What is the reception like, and what is the news that you're getting back from the Caribbean out there in the UK? Mm. Because on this side of the world, we are seeing protests. Uh, We saw a little. I saw a little bit of his speech where he spoke about the deep shame and sorrow of slavery and just this close to saying I'm sorry we did this to y'all but this is also happening at a time when apparently Jamaica is suing the UK for reparations what's the news? Well in a place like Russia um, or even in a place like China you've got active censorship where the government specifically says don't talk about this In the UK, there is a secret pact that exists between the traditional media and royalty in that whatever you do, you do not embarrass the royal family. It's been remarkably awkward because now, obviously, all of a sudden, there's a PR disaster going on in the Caribbean. In a remarkably important year here, it is the Jubilee year, which simply means that this whole year is actually dedicated to one weekend that's going to happen sometime in June where we're going to spend the whole week celebrating the fact that Queen Elizabeth refuses to go anywhere. So she's been on the throne since uh, 1952, which is when her father died. Ironically, she was in Kenya on holiday when her father died under another colony. So they simply to have been stuck with this problem for the past 70 years. So what you'll see is that the traditional media tries to find some positive spins from the fact that um, Prince William and his wife are having a disaster of a tour in the Caribbean. And then the tabloids, of course, who have never bothered to give a damn about the royal family, they are unhinged. They are telling it as it is going on about how appropriately or inappropriately their address going on about how the whole shaking of the hands through the fences is probably the most ill-advised picture moment that you're ever going to find. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but of course it is in the wrong side because you would have thought that the media titles that pride themselves on you know having integrity would be as honest as they need to be in telling us this, but unfortunately they haven't broken away from that centuries-old tradition that for as long as Queen Elizabeth is alive, we all owe her a duty to respect her even if her entire family has been you know a, a citadel to scandal particularly over the past couple of years. So it's very funny to watch. It's very funny to observe. And Jamaica is just the latest in the list of countries that have said perhaps there's nothing more embarrassing than the fact that a person who's over 95 years old, who hasn't been here in years, is referred to as the head of state. As the head of state. Yeah, officially she's the head of state of New Zealand She's the head of state of Australia She was the head of state of Barbados until a few months ago Where suddenly the new prime minister Seemed to have woken up belatedly and said What the hell does this mean? So suddenly the Jamaicans seem to have caught on the bandwagon But of course it's um, it, It's a long complicated history And guess what, it was in 1966 I think um, when Neville Chamberlain Referred to it as the winds of change The fact that it's taken the better part of 60 years For the winds of change to get to the Caribbean Is a great tragedy of our time and over there, far away, I see you still have your pulse, uh, your finger on the pulse of what's happening in South Africa. 
is yeah, because for some silly reason, you know, when you try to run away, I forgot that in a globalized world, borders no longer exist. So the fact that you're 10,000 kilometers away has become completely irrelevant in this day and age, unless you can put on these walls, these artificial um, uh, social media walls, for example, that keeps you completely insulated from what's happening out there. It actually doesn't feel like you've gone away at all. The most bizarre thing is that, you know, usually when you go away, you sort of have to get a new cell phone number and all of these things. Well, bizarrely, in the age of, you know, free Wi-Fi and all of that, my South African number actually works perfectly. So it's literally just me being um, in a different province, uh, as it feels like, because most people who haven't been aware that I'm not around, they just call randomly at any point in time, and then they just have conversations, and then they're like, can we have an interview at 7 a.m.? Like some people I know, and I'm like, yeah, of course, 7 a.m., why not? Not knowing that I'm many, many hours behind. So it's actually quite... Um, I mean, the world has changed so much. It's literally very difficult uh, for people to know that you're not even around until you explicitly tell them. We love you, Kaya, for waking up at 5 a.m. to be with us. Kaya, we speak a lot about here on the show. I'm a big welcome. fan. Welcome. I still want to hear about welcome. How is this all about London now? <laughs> you missed the whole about oh, that. No, you walked away at that point. <laughs> you walked away at that point. No, no, no. You mentioned xenophobia, and guess what? I'm a foreign in a foreign country, so of course, for me, that has particular sensitivities at this point in time. The wow. idea of that was to get you. Will I be a victim? What is it going to be called in, in the UK? Operation Move the Wall. Something sophisticated and elegant. It just definitely will not sound crude. Expunge the way of framing it. Yeah, you know, disenfranchise it or some nonsense like that. One of the things that we're watching is the conversation has been monopolized around what illegal foreigners and one of the first people that came out guns blazing with this was Herman Mashaba. It was a very big part of his kind of his campaign, being mayor of Joburg and what the things that he was going to do in Joburg. He's been very quiet in the past couple of weeks as things have escalated with the EFF and various kind of factions and and the and things have come to a head yesterday, I think, with the with the opening of a case by one of the EFF uh, I think he's a branch uh mm. he's a, a branch chairperson. And it's been very fascinating to watch. What is your take on what's happening and where is it going to? Two days um, ago. says it won't happen in, in, in Welcome because the foreign nationals keep the economy going. In Welcome, it may happen. And and less letters there will not even know about it because literally no one covers Welcome for anything. And um, if people bothered to cover Welcome, the first thing would have dealt with is why it still has an African's name because I'm always fascinated by the origins of the names of the cities. So the first thing would have dealt with was why it's still called Welcome. So yeah, I think once it just gets away from there, probably no one will notice that anything happens there. But quite interestingly, um, I've always had a very different take on this whole um, illegal immigration versus xenophobia question. Um, firstly, I strongly believe that uh, Mashaba was greatly misunderstood last year uh, ahead of his election campaign. Um, interestingly, the EFF was equally misunderstood in that Mashaba would have never would have never stood a chance on any ballot if he said that immigration is a problem. There's absolutely no way you can get away with such explicit xenophobia, particularly in South Africa. The whole point that was being raised is the fact that, unfortunately, in South Africa, our border control and our border management is so 
so completely non-existent, there is a high incidence of illegal immigration. And illegal immigration is a problem. It doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. Illegal immigration is a problem. It's always been a problem. On the other hand, what the EFF then sounded like it was saying is that it was advocating for a completely lawless society where people can walk from Cape to Cairo, which ironically was inspired by Cecil John Rhodes many, many years ago. And I'm not sure if the EFF is acutely aware of the things that it says that seem to be taken from the Cecil John Rhodes handbook. But again, equally then, the problem was that people didn't really try to um, deal with that actual point that was being raised. And the point that was being raised by the EFF in particular is that, well, actually, if you look at examples across the globe uh, of trade blocks, so if you talk about the European Union, what the European Union took the decision, uh, I think it started way back in 1973, actually, was the fact that, well, actually, what we want to be able to do is want to be able to uh, enable easier migration of labor and capital across the borders of Europe. So they start... Goods and money. Goods and money. You want to the main access for goods and money across the various exactly. borders. So once you do that, you obviously have to write the rules that enable that to happen. And it starts off by, you know, enabling capital flows and actually people migration becomes the very last thing that you do. So the Schengen area, for example, was the, at the end of that particular process. The euro, the common currency happened, I think, around in 2000. It's been over 22 years. So it's always been a very coordinated process to say that the cost of living is reduced when we don't literally build someone for buying one, a loaf of bread and buy bridge and then crossing across the uh, Zimbabwe and then suddenly the, the price doubles because of the co- of the prices you're charging at the border gates. That's the whole point. The African Continental Free Trade Agreement, of course, obviously Africa is so slow, it's taken the better part of 50 years for them to get it across. And the whole point was that, okay, cool, once you have that entire you know, economic zone working, surely the next step becomes the ease of migration across those borders. So that's literally what the issue is here. Now, of course, Malema doesn't feel, um, you know, burdened to be diplomatic about anything, and he doesn't feel the need to be able to explain himself to people who probably don't share his persuasion. So he comes out screaming about open borders, and then people are saying, you're talking nonsense. How can we, a country that still doesn't even know who's here and who isn't here, starting to advocate for open borders? So I think both political parties were greatly misunderstood, and they suffered at the polls in one way or another. Well, the EFF would say it suffered. I don't think HNSA would say that they suffered, because it then turned out that many more people resonated with the HNSA message and said, we think there's a problem. And this was something quite curiously I'd written about, I think, 12 or 13 years ago. So when I first started traveling to Europe, I started documenting a very interesting uh, phenomenon that you saw about how people who enter countries as immigrants suddenly seem to have a relatively stronger you know, you know, ability to ingratiate into the economy. And that was something that baffled me. So when I traveled to France for the very first time, and then you suddenly started seeing a lot of black immigrants, and then whether they're from the Ivory Coast or Senegal or, or you know, or Algeria and places like that. And, you know, you go to all these places um, where there is, ironically, as a consequence of colonial history, where people feel that those places are where they need to go. 
And the point that was being raised then is that in all these other countries, those minorities, when they arrive, they literally have got nothing to work with. They've got nothing to, they've got nothing that validates their presence in that economy. So you found that their ability to hustle their way was much stronger than what you're seeing in South, being, you know, evidenced by South Africa, for example. Mm-hmm. So you saw those people starting shops and, you know, um, running the, 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 those particular parts of the economy in manners that that made you think, wait, it looks like these people actually seem to have an idea of what needs to be done here. So that was the contrast. And then you looked at South Africans, where South African citizens just felt that, you know, actually things are not working the way that they were. And I was fascinated by why, if you go to these European countries, the immigrants out there seem to be actually trying to occupy a particular economic space. And guess what? In South Africa, you saw the incidents of that where suddenly we say that, but all these people who are foreigners, why do they have these puzzle shops and we don't? And that's a, repli- a replica of what you actually see across the globe because what they do is that when they get there, they've got no access to any of the social services, to any of the economic systems. So what they then start doing is that they try to find parts of the economic value chain that are accessible. And parts of the economic value chain that are accessible are the informal aspects of the uh, of the economic value chain, which is what you will see here. So when you come to, um, uh, you know, even... France is always a good example because I think it's always very interesting, the contrast. So you see these places where suddenly it feels like I'm in the hood, for example. So those access to those accessible parts of the economic value chain, that's where they find their space and then that's where they make things thrive. So in South Africa, when you then hear that people say, oh, the Somalians and the Pakistanis and all of this are running these particular parts of the economy, it's because that's the accessible part and that's where they become visible. You suddenly then discover that those same immigrants then struggle to move up the labor value chain or the economic value chain, because suddenly, if you're trying to run a bank, then the question of, well, um, where's the documentation, where the skills and all of these things. So it's much easier for them to penetrate that side. The problem that's unique in South African, unfortunately, is that unlike a place like France, for example, where the citizens of the country themselves probably have got much greater penetration on the formal parts of the economy, the contestation is and high unemployment is precisely at that bottom end of the economic value chain. So South Africa find themselves being displaced by foreigners, or even if they're not displaced because mathematically not being displaced, the view is that, wait, hold on, perhaps it is undesirable for even one foreign uh, shopkeeper to thrive when there is one South African citizen who's unemployed. So mathematically, we're not being displaced, but unfortunately, there are far too many incidences of people looking around and saying, actually, as far as I'm concerned, the reason I don't have a job is this. So it happened twice in the world. So it happened with Brexit and it happened with Trump. So I've actually done some research on why Trump and Brexit happened. And when Brexit was about to happen, everybody that I spoke to said, "Ah, it's never going to happen. And it then turned out... I was one of those people. I was sitting here on my couch as they were counting the votes. I went to bed and woke up and Brexit had happened. I was blown away. Yeah. Similarly with Trump, I remember I was at the JFC <laughs> when, uh, when the votes were being counted in 2016. So the question that I then uh, started asking when I then traveled to um, uh, to, to the UK uh, after Brexit, I haven't been to the US since Trump happened because I just didn't know if I was ever going to be able to get out or even get in. It then or turned stay out, alive. Yeah. All the people that you and I had spoken to were people that were in the cosmopolitan part 
of the labor system in the United Kingdom. So it's very unlikely that you had friends who were based in the United Kingdom and working in McDonald's because very few of our South African uh, friends actually live in South Africa and come and work at McDonald's. So what then had happened was that whilst we were all celebrating our cosmopolitan London had become, or even Manchester, or even Liverpool, and our friends had got jobs there, the opening up of the borders actually affected the peripheries of the country in that it was in all these forgotten small economies like Welcome, where suddenly people said, the reason I don't have a job as a waiter is because when I went to McDonald's yesterday, there was someone working there as a waiter whose language I couldn't even understand. This person turns out is from Eastern Europe and all of these things. So it was then felt that the reason so many of those marginal constituencies had higher unemployment and they've got, you know, labor problems was simply because somebody many years ago had said, let's open up the borders. And when the borders had opened up, then you had these Eastern Europeans then coming in and crowding out those particular citizens. So that's why the Brexit message that Nigel Farage in particular championed was never about London. He couldn't have been bothered by what happened in London. But the issue was that there were so many displaced citizens across the periphery of the United Kingdom. For them, Brexit resonated. And that's how we all missed it. Same thing with Donald Trump. So the Donald Trump phenomenon actually started in 1992 um, when Bill Clinton um, was campaigning to be elected president in that at the same time, they were trying to rewrite the agreement of the trade agreement between Canada, Mexico and the United States. And that eventually became what we call NAFTA. It's the North Atlantic Free uh, free Trade, uh, American Free Trade Agreement. And one of the points that was raised there is that because America and Canada were so advanced in terms of the labor laws that they had in particular, in terms of the labor protections that they had compared to Mexico, the possibility that would happen once the borders were opened is that many more businesses would see Mexico as the easiest place to do business because it's obviously much cheaper to do business. They took your jobs overseas. Exactly. <laughs> so in one, in one presidential debate, and I think the, this point was first raised on Larry King Live uh, around February 1992. One of the candidates who then actually uh, contested the election, he referred to as the giant sucking sounds of American jo- jobs going south, simply on the basis that the agreement opened up the borders into a country where the regulations were so non-existent, it would be much cheaper for American businesses to move across. And guess what? Over the next 30 years, so many more jobs moved down the border, down south. When Trump came up um, in, in 2014 and 15 and say was around the election, he simply went to the border. That's why the whole Mexican world, world thing actually originated from, because he went to all those communities that exist much closer to the Mexican border and he could see the loss of jobs that had happened since 1992 in that area and the fact that the American job market had spiked up, the Mexican, sorry, the Mexican job market had spiked up in relation to the jobs that used to be on this side of the border. And that's why he went to those particular communities and then he says the only reason you don't have a job the only reason you're economically marginalized is because somebody, the bloody Democrats opened up the border many years ago so all I'm going to do is put up a wall and get you your job back and it was guaranteed uh, taken into the White House You know, I mean, talking about the economics and the fascinating thing about those numbers and what they are and because it's your area of expertise, accounting I was also very interested looking at the IEC's um, reckoning, as it were, when they um, put out all of the balance sheets of the various political parties. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And 
Taya, I'm very interested to know what your takeout was looking at those balance sheets because I only have finance for non-financial managers, right? So, <laughs> so did you see any of those, Leandro? I, I the, the one that was particularly interesting for me was the EFF, right? And how much they have without having as much share of the IEC's money as the other parties. I mean, they're doing something right, right? Um, the amount of employees double, almost tripled. Their right? assets, um, their assets. <laughs> their assets are all over the place, right? And so... I'm, I'm something. There's something they're doing very, very right. And they're keeping <laughs> or, or, very or, secret. Or there's something they're doing very wrong. Yes. Either way, it's very successful. It's making them a lot of money. Whatever that thing is. Oh, um, that's what it looks because, like. Kaya is. Yeah. Uh, Kaya, who is the the eco's is person, is shaking his head vigorously. Kaya, you disagree. Of course, I disagree. So I actually put up um, those balance sheets uh, over the weekend because I had to do um, sort of like a lecture thing uh, for some journalists uh, on behalf of an organization called My Vote Counts. So that's the organization that essentially has been pushing for the Political Party Funding Act to become law. So what we're now trying to figure out is once the the law is fully implemented, because so far we've only had the first nine months of implementation, so we're heading up to the 12 months, in fact, expiring in exactly seven days' time. So what we're trying to figure out is what the disclosures in relation to political party funding are actually going to look like on the basis of an entire year. So what I then had to go and extract was what has historically been disclosed because now uh, we're trying to figure out, we're trying to map what the what, what the new numbers need to look like and what they mean. So what those spreadsheets actually represent are incomplete, they're snapshots, they're completely incomplete spreadsheets. So because historically the IEC has allocated money to political parties through the represented political party fund, what they've always said is that whoever takes money from the IEC must explain what they did with the money. So what these political parties do is that they get their allocation. So the NC got 86 million rand last year. Um, well, in the in the last reported cycle, rather. Um, so what you're then supposed to do is that you're supposed to go back to the IC and say, this is what we did with the money. So what the parties then do is that they send um, the IEC screenshots of their finances. So what they will do is that they'll say, okay, we received 86 million rand from the IEC and we spent 83 million, which is what the ANC said, of that on salaries. Okay, so the DA says that we received, I uh, think, about 32 million rand, and we spent about 23 million in salaries. We spent uh, X, Y, Z on the website and all of those things. So the reason they do it like that is because up until this new act came into operation last year, they didn't feel under any obligation to explain anything else to the IEC, and the IEC equally didn't have the latitude to say, no, 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 we want your every single bank account that you have. So the IEC simply said, I can't what we've given you. So that's what you saw with those particular spreadsheets. The EFF made a mistake. And the mistake that the EFF made is that they then put it in their in their disclosures that they spent the IC money on acquiring properties. So then you have this interesting number that says that we've got assets in terms of properties of around 26 million rand. So we assume that is their main headquarters in Gandhi Street. So they want to give the impression that they specifically spend the IC money on acquiring their particular property, which is one possible thing. 
What I read from it was the fact that the EFF in particular has an interest in following that approach. And the reason that approach makes sense to them is that the moment everyone saw that they acquired this massive building at the epicenter of the CBD, many people would have said, this is not a cheap building to to, to Where did the money come from? Exactly. So because the EFF wants to position itself as this party that is so bare-knuckled, they literally work on a volunteer model, for example, where for them it is all about the principle of trying to govern rather than the, 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 the money involved in politics. It made sense for them to be able to say that should anyone ask about where we acquired this one single most expensive item, we can clearly say that this came from the public, it came from public funds, so there's absolutely no need for us to explain anything else. Because if the EFF had said that, oh, no, 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 we use the IEC funding to fund salaries, for example, they receive about 19 million rand a year. And somebody had worked out that the cost of their property is 25 million, the most obvious and the most immediate question would be to say, well, hold on, for a party like this, this one that seems to project this particular image to the, to the public. Where did you get the 25 million rand in order to finance your property plant and equipment? And the EFM is better served by saying, no, 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 we got it from you. So therefore, none of you can ask your question of where the money came from. I was also interested to see, you know, just because they, they had the um, disclosures of the, the various private funding that they were able to bring in a couple of months ago as well, to see on their balanced sheet then, the snapshot that we saw of their balance sheets, the, the accounting thereof, you know, so it's it's very shady. And, and this has always been my fascination about how you put together financials, is you can hide so much in plain sight, right? And, and a little bit of what I saw with the EFF was that too. But I was also fascinated that Action SA, which has also been, as you say, bare knuckle about, you know, this perception that they are bare knuckling it. I didn't see anything from the um, Action SA. Did you? Yeah, so the disclosures that I speak about were published by the IC in relation to the 2020 financial year. So it actually ends in March 2020. So because Mm. of the timelines associated with it, we still don't have a picture of what March 2021 looks like. So the disclosures up to March 2021 is the first time that we expect to see Action SA uh, being documented there. So obviously they, they may show up then, but it's very unlikely that you're going to see much because remember that a represented political parties fund requires you to have been represented at either the national legislature or even the oh, provincial wow. legislature. And of course, Action SA until November last year had no representation in other way. So there's probably going to be yet another gap where people are going to be like, but this party looks like it's, it's rich and the IEC knows nothing about it. But it's simply because of the time lags that we are dealing with here. So it's probably going to be sometime in the middle of next year where we get the disclosures leading to um, March because March 2022 next week is the end of the political year so therefore only then will we then see insights into action sa but even then it probably won't be much because the the ic hasn't really given them anything so in relation to the disclosures we saw there's nothing to compare the closest you're going to get is in the new disclosures which are the ones relating to tell us everything that went into your bank account does the skill exist at the IEC to fully interrogate 
these numbers that are coming through to them because it, it's a particular skill. Do, do you know? Do they know how to, or are they like me, finance for non-financial managers? Right? They mm. can kind of read what it is, but are they, you know, fully interrogating? Because there are lots of conversations that happen, and Cyril Ramaphosa is currently in the in the throes of a discussion mm. around where did the money come from to fund his campaign, and also. Did the money come out of government coffers to fund ANC internal battles and all of that? You know, so does the IEC have the skill required to fully interrogate this? And if they do, and they do, what does that really mean in terms of the rest of us and what we see and hear? Ah, you should have attended our lecture. That yeah, why did I invite him? Why did I invite him? Because it's for people who work normal hours, not this 5 a.m. stuff. <laughs> it's still 5 a.m. I'm going to keep reminding you that. Um, well, the, the point that I raised is that that question is a tricky one because the IEC does not work on a model of treating political parties with suspicion. So their understanding is that we've asked for the disclosures, we're going to get the disclosures. The questions that you are asking are forensic in approach. And the forensic approach always works on the premise that I've got something to find. There You're is something that something. is wrong. Exactly. So the IC doesn't work on that premise. Um, so what will have to happen is that it will have to be prompted to take a forensic approach. And the prompt will be if suddenly the sum of the disclosures of what we got, what we gave you as the IC versus what you say you received from the donations and versus what you say from other income sources. If the sum of those disclosures does not match the cost of that rally that you had in November, we have a problem. Only then will the IEC even entertain this idea of a forensic hat to say, we think your disclosures are inadequate or inaccurate. So that's the only time that you're going to get them. So what we were trying to put together last week was a simple basis on at what point in time do we look at the sum of disclosures and say, this is nonsense, this doesn't make sense, and then uh, craft questions around it to say, we don't think there's um, uh, everything has been disclosed or you know some elements are missing. So it's actually going to be initiated outside of the IEC because the IEC has taken the approach that you know we are, uh, are working on, on a bona fide basis with the political parties. They are going to be as honest, and of course, they're going to say that they've been audited. So if their auditors are saying that this is a state of affairs, the IEC is going to have to start with as a premise. It is only in instances of clear uh, misrepresentation where you suspect they will be prompted to then say, wait, hold on, this just doesn't make sense. And only then we'll be able to deliberate on the forensic aspects of it. But they do have the skills. Sorry. Uh, That's a very important thing because we have obviously been asking the question. They're saying they're building the skills. They're building the forensic skills. But again, until we see a test of those skills um, in a live environment where they literally then say, we took the disclosures of that party. This is what we uh, did to, you know, uh, pick them apart. And this is how we then went back to the party and said, try again. Only then we will know how strong or how useful those skills are. But they're definitely putting them together, actually. You mustn't let me monopolize this conversation because I, I have many things that I would love to talk to Kaya about. So you can jump in anytime if you've got a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the first thing is, yeah. Also, I wanted to, well, I was also thinking about that. Like, so to what end? So what if, let's say, party A does mess up to a point that we're like, okay, this is clearly like a flagrant disregard for any sort of proper accounting um, rules, right, or anything an auditor would 
actually see as something wrong. To what end would it go to? Like, to what degree? Because we also it's also like uncharted territory. But the other thing is, I wanted to ask Kai about his his article um, with, with Russia and South Africa fence sitting, right? And my one question I keep going over my, in my head is, does the ANC government have any other position to take on Russia or China or Cuba, for instance, when, other than fence city, when, it, when it's a conflict or a problem that they raise? Because it seems like in this Russia-Ukraine situation, our only play or the only play the ANC had was to fence it and not overtly go against Russia, which would look like also, um, obviously going for the U.S. So what do you think about that, Kaya? I, I think, I, I, I've tweeted this before, that, you know, South Africa won the 1996 African Cup of Nations. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Well, we didn't. Nelson Mandela won the African Cup of Nations. So <laughs> it, is, um, it is 1995. The government of Sunny Abacha in Nigeria is in this habit of uh, killing activists who piss it off. So Ken Sarowiwa has a problem against, ironically, what Shell is doing in, um, in, 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 in Nigeria. So he comes out and says, we've got a problem. So just like Greta Mantasha would many, many years later champion the cause of Shell against communities, Ken Sarowiwa is doing the opposite, and the government of Nigeria then decides to assassinate him. And Nelson Mandela uh, breaks the code because the code that existed amongst AU leaders is that whatever you do, you do not ever find fault in your fellow leaders. So that's why um, uh, African leaders are not in the habit of calling each other out. So they Nelson don't call Mandela, each other out. Exactly. So Nelson Mandela mm-hmm. comes out and said, it's it, it, it's nonsense what has happened in Nigeria. The assassination of Kinsaro was a problem. And it became such a diplomatic crisis, um, the Nigerian government refused to send its soccer team to play in South Africa, the mm. African Cup of Nations in the This is one of the best teams <laughs> in the continent. And that's the only reason we ever won the African Cup of Nations. I I so, didn't remember that the Super Eagles were Yeah, that, that's what happened. You ban Nigeria, yes, then you win. Said, I remember that. So that's why we've never won it since, because we haven't had a diplomatic <laughs> crisis at the same level. The, 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 the key problem here is that South Africa cannot, on the one hand, be allowed to get away with this idea of being the, the, the world's moral conscience, because we're the ones that always remind the world on why what's happening in Palestine in particular is so problematic, because we always tell people we've been through this. We know how bad it is. We know exactly what the scale of, 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 of this human you know, crisis is. So on the one hand, we are the country that has put the position that we're always going to stand on the side of of, of the small man, of the marginalized. That's what informs our position uh, on the Sahrawi people. That's how it informs our position on the Palestinian-Israel conflict. Absolutely. So in this particular instance, it is not open to South Africa to say, oh, well, a country may have been invaded, but because we're friends with the invaders, suddenly we're going to go and sit on the fence. South Africa doesn't sit on the fence. South Africa takes principle views. That's why we can say that, actually, ironically, we want to support Cuba because we are saying that even though part of the reason the Cuban economy is always in doldrums is because of, you know, the sanctions implemented by, by the United States, we are going to help the Cubans because we understand that, actually, the sanctions have got an adverse effect on that particular country. So if you're willing to tell the United States to go and jump and still offer humanitarian assistance to Cuba of 50 million in its 
latest iteration, you're not going to be famous as you're not going to be known as a country that sits on the fence until you get to an instance where you specifically decide to depart from what the world has come to understand about you and say this is what we want to do. So it's a cop out by this particular administration, it's a cop out by this particular government, and it's them feeling that they're protecting their um international interests, whatever that means. So that's literally where we find ourselves. And for me, the great, the greatest tragedy is that, you know, whenever you see people who are adamant that you must support Putin, for example, they always go back to this thing that we're part of the BRICS nation. Guys, there's no such thing as a <laughs> It was a bloody essay written by Jim O'Neill at WMC, as you can get. He was a Goldman Sachs economist who wrote an article about Brazil, Russia, India, and China, talking about how those countries had this opportunity to actually just, you know, have a much stronger foothold on the global economy. It was a bloody essay written in the United States as WMC as you can get. So isn't it truly ironic that those that are completely anti-WMC then say, oh, no, we must do this because we're part of BRICS. I'm like, what the hell is BRICS? The fundamental sanctioned by, of what sanctioned by happens in those four countries. South Africa's got nothing to do with what those other four countries do. We have absolutely no standing in that particular conversation. What we were given was a political entry point. So suddenly people say, yeah, there's something called BRICS, but literally we, we've got no basis being part of that particular and the irony is that it was a white man Jim O'Neill who imposed us there and suddenly all of those that are like yeah you must do this and must support that and forgotten that the only reason we're even having the conversation is because a capitalist from Goldman Sachs told us that he's writing an essay and then we impose ourselves in it Mm. So the mm. issue of skills, you know, speaking up about kind of the economists and the people who, who make these kinds of pronouncements and skills, which is something South Africans love to complain about. We don't have the skills base. Kaya, you have a very interesting journey in terms of building a skills base, particularly in the chartered accountancy world. And, and I love your approach because on the surface of it, Kaya is... You know, a guy from a, the of a little village. In At least it was not welcome, but it was, yeah, middle of nowhere. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. What? With, <laughs> and, and you yourself have a background that is, that, that is a very typical South African background where you've had to scrounge and scratch and get to where you have gotten to by, you know, your own pulling yourself up by bootstraps and being helped along by various individuals, you know. And yet you set yourself a challenge to affect and change a particular space in in the chartered accountancy world. Please tell us a little bit about that and, and why you did it and how I, you I wish it. it could have been in the sciences, you know, things <laughs> like medicine, maybe things that make a difference. Um, um, accountants are known for just documenting what other people have done rather than <laughs> changing things. So it's, it's, a, it's an awkward profession. Um, look, it, it was bizarre. It, it's all, it all happened in Facebook. So someone writes on my wall to say, oh, yeah, we've got a problem. All the black people failed. I was like, I mean, you're talking nonsense. And this was around November 2010. 
So I got fascinated by that. I was like, oh, what do you mean all the black people failed? I was like, it just doesn't make sense for any university in the country to have zero pass rate for black people when there had been 800 of us when I started in first year. So um, that's actually just initiated. And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. Let me draw, try and see what this thing is all about. And then I started reading it. And then I was like, oh, actually, I think this can be fixed. So that's what actually prompted the initial foray into academia. I, can, I had taken an interest in it before, but it had never been very lucrative. It still isn't very lucrative so i never thought i'd go back there in uh, for a long term um so 2010 happens and then someone writes on my facebook wall and then i'm like okay cool let me try to try and go and fix this so then i started in 2011 and then i got stuck it's been 11 years now and it just looked quite interesting um how i felt it was relatively easy to actually solve the big crisis because you had really had to all that was needed was a very intimate understanding of what the issues were uh, uh, and, and even more intimate understanding of what the system was and then this idea of what you wanted the outcomes to be. So you just map those three uh, 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 elements together and then you work on it every single day. It's actually much easier uh, to run. The problem, of course, is that... Um, I always say that my great regret is that it became something that I did rather than system, something that the system did. Uh, because mm-hmm. as I said, um, I don't think the country's greatest crisis was a lack of accountants at any point in time. There are far, far greater uh, uh, needs in other skill sets, but because I'm not part of those ecosystems, I wouldn't know where to start. So it always feels like it became a, 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 a bit of a gamble in relation to a particular profession rather than a universal fix of the system at large, which is what the politicians and the policymakers are supposed to be doing, but they're clearly unreally committed to doing that. So they're not committed to doing that, and and this is why, you know, I very strongly feel that it's going to take individuals starting and bringing along a whole lot of other individuals to get systemic changes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The, the one interesting part is that, um, in, in spite of all the work that I do, I strongly disagree with the idea of the South African bursaries model, for example. And the reason I always disagree with it is that the one problem that always emanates is that once you get non-state actors involved, they have the ability to exercise, exercise an element of discretion. And that element of discretion is me deciding that I'm going to put together a scholarship and that scholarship is going to be for students of a particular caliber. And what will then happen is that I will then select those particular students that I feel need to be part of this particular program. And, of course, they're going to stand a much better chance of succeeding. And the problem that exists with that is that what we then do is that we fail to tackle the one great problem of South Africa, and that's a problem of the persistence of inequality. So what we then see happening is that that inequality dimension is now being replicated amongst even black societies. So I particularly went to a, 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 a school um, in rural KZN many, many years ago, and I was one of the students that used to be accused of being a top achiever by the teachers. So that worked well. And then at some point in time, we had this corporate um, entity that came through to that particular village, and then it says, we want the brightest kids that you have, and then they all gave us scholarships, and then we went off to Model C schools. And then many, many years later, about 10 or 15 years later, when I went to revisit that particular community, and then I looked around at the people that I'd been in class with, and most of them hadn't mm-hmm. just gone very far. And the question that started haunting me was to say, well, actually, 
what exactly was the benefit of us taking the people that used to be um, of great assistance to their own peers because we used to teach them maths and all of that stuff. Um, in fact, I started writing grade 10 uh, um, maths papers and I'm still in, in grade 8, so I was helping the grade 10s when I was in grade 8. Yeah, because we mostly learn through peers, right? Yeah, exactly. So what that system then did is that it took out those peers that were actually lifting up everybody else and then it completely disengaged them from the system. So then the system at large remained largely idle. So then you go back and then you say, yeah, in fact, there were five of us that were taken by that first cohort. And then you say, okay, so all the five of us are going to be able to drive into this particular community in our Range Rovers, but then what are we driving into? Because now suddenly what we've seen is that there's a new manifestation of inequality. There's the five of us that are plucked out and then the 60 or 70 classmates of ours that are left behind and have been left behind for many, many years, and, and now there's an intergenerational effect of that. So I'm not a fan of these discretionary models. The state is always best suited to allocate resources equitably across different parts of the population. So the one example that we saw, and this is what we used to fight during FISMA's form, in that I still think the Nesfas model is completely stupid. It's the dumbest thing that you'll ever see. Makes no sense. Because what happens is that the, 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 the big corporates, they go and sponsor the smartest students. The smartest students are the ones that actually will get through it without any form of intervention because the reason you invest in them is because you're like, that's a winner. That's, that's, that's also going to win. Right? So then, so, and then we allow these corporates to come back and say, no, our best program is perfect because I'm like, no, it isn't. You two candidates that had been well, so well prepared surprisingly, by the basic education system, they're always going to thrive at UCT. So you actually didn't make a change. What you did is that with the resources that you could have had, you failed to deal with the larger population of students whose basic education experience had been so compromised, they don't stand a chance at UCT unless somebody assists them. And it is those students that we then burden with the loan system, knowing very well that their pass rates are much lower. So what you then have is that people that are poor get trapped into the loan system. Most of them, they have data in front of tells us that they're not going to survive the system so therefore those that are born poor are then condemned into intergenerational poverty by the bloody state itself and then the people that get out of the system and that get access into the economic labor chain are the ones that were the smarter ones so now there's this new manifestation of inequality and that's where the clever blacks came from as my homeboy from Ganga once called all of us Hey, dude, I absolutely. So 11 years later, um, how many CAs do you have on your spreadsheet? <laughs> well, I, I think something weird happened is that somebody said that we need to create a spreadsheet for London because uh, since I've been here every weekend, I've been meeting up uh, with so many of them that now live here. Oh. I was like, I didn't know so many of you people that ran out from the country. So even this coming weekend, we're having a reunion with a completely separate group um, around 20. So even if we deal the London spreadsheet, it is probably around 120 in the UK right now of that from that spreadsheet. The universal spreadsheet it, it keeps expanding, and sometimes I forget. So, a couple of months ago, um, um, no, it's actually six weeks ago. I go to Rockets because it was the day of the board exam results. So I go to Rockets and, you know, we're celebrating. So some people, you know, you tweet you like we had Rockets and then somebody comes. And then this person says, we first met in 2011. I'm like, oh, okay. It's been 11 years. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so obviously a person like that at some point in time would have forgotten that actually, you know, I once met this person 11 years ago. They said this is what they wanted to do. And then they tell you their journey. So sometimes you actually discover many years later that, oh, somebody says, oh yeah, by the way, 
I see my name is missing and this is the story. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Wow. I arrived here in London a couple of weeks ago and unfortunately, I don't remember everybody, you know, granularly. So someone says, no, 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 it was this year in 2016. I attended this class. This is what you said. This is how we got here. And here I am. And that's the first time that I've had the conversation with mm-hmm. the person because she's a part of that 600 people and all of that. So there's a lot. Um, so officially the spreadsheet is standing around 600, but I keep getting told that the spreadsheet is incomplete because there are some people um, that I haven't documented. 600 lives you've changed. That's amazing. And do you have a system where exponential growth, right? That's what, that's what we also learn there by accounting and economics that that's where the power is, right? Isn't the exponential growth. Mm. So do you have a system where those individuals, those 600 odd individuals are themselves doing, paying it forward as it were? Well, we're being failed by the bigger system because the best place to do this is in academia and academia mm. is the one place where they don't get paid. <laughs> so it's remarkably difficult for me to convince all of them to go back into academia. And uh, I always tell the story of the most bizarre thing that happened when I started teaching. I moved back to KZN and I had like um, relatives in KZN. You know, KZN, somebody just used to stumble upon a hill and say, I think we could put a couple of houses here. So yeah. ridiculously... It's, yeah. Uh, you know, badly planned a uh, place like Lamontville. It's like a, 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 a monumental disaster. I have absolutely no idea how anyone thought people would live that, live in a place like that. So, um, and I, I have no idea how they park their cars. Like that, that's the like point. the level so, of clutch control you have to have in order to drive out of your driveway, and mostly yeah. in reverse. It's crazy. I'm just saying. So when I moved to KZN, I stayed with relatives who had the problem because there's absolutely no place to park. So I left my car in Johannesburg because like there's no point in me taking my car to KZN. I'm going to take taxes because that's what everyone does. So I start teaching and then, you know, eventually you say to people, oh, this is what I do, this is how I've done it and all the stuff. And then they're like, okay, that's a very interesting story. Until one of them one day finds me in a taxi. <laughs> then they go back to class they're like, nah, this can't be, this is nonsense. It's, it's not possible. And if it is possible, that's not the profession that I want to be in. They're like, you can't say you that and then take a text with us. I'm like, are you actually serious? And there's a thing about lecturers and taxis. That's that's the same thing I get over here. And the cheapest mode of transport in Welcome is a taxi. It's 13 Rand for a taxi anyway. And me being an accountant, of course, that was for me. I'm like, why the hell am I going to spend hundreds of thousands of rent when there's a form of transport that's cheap and accessible? But apparently that wasn't going to fly, so I ended up having to buy a car. <laughs> <laughs> well, that has, this has been an incredibly uh, fascinating conversation and very enlightening, and I hope that the listeners had the same. And I think this is a perfect note to end this conversation, there's a message here from Sane Lenkosi who says, Kaya is a gem, touched my life since 2012 while on my journey to CA. More power to you, brother. So thank you for waking up. very well. It's been my honest class of 2012, yeah. yeah. Sanele is one of our, is one of our um, regulars. Thank you, Sanele, for sharing that with us. Kaya, thank you for waking up at 5 a.m. to be with us. Leado, you didn't say much today, and and, and I, I I suspected this is what you were going to do when I, when we were WhatsApping and talking about this particular show. So I no, I'm, I'm devastated you didn't say a lot today. No, I'm such a huge fan of Kaya, so I know him through friends, <laughs> and I've heard about his legendary <laughs> conversations. So this was was my opportunity to listen. I, he's such a he's such a his views are so great because they're so different from mine. Right, I develop my own views and. Whenever I hear him or see his tweets, 
he's always got a new, fresh approach. And I'm always keen for, for, for people who have these fresh approaches that I don't necessarily see. And it was a pleasure listening to him. Kaya, you have a funny Twitter account and Facebook account. Please tell the people what it is so they can follow, Kaya. like, and subscribe. Oh, it's at Koruska Kaya, C-O-R-U-S-C-A-K-H-A-Y-A. That's on Twitter. I'm not sure if anyone is still on Facebook, but if you're still there, I just don't know, don't know what you're doing there. It's a Kaya Esitola. You live in Valcom, brother. I, I really think that you're going to have to be forgiven for a lot of those sins. So, yeah, those are the, those are the two. I also occasionally tap into Instagram, but dear God, the narcissism that happens there, don't bother. <laughs> Kaya Sitole, thank you for being a blessing to all those 600 people and more and thank you for blessing us with your presence here today so everybody I hope you enjoyed this conversation and happy Thursday happy Puza Thursday everybody said so go out there and be great thank you bye cliffcentral.com